Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the new book, Florida's Healing Waters, Gilded Age Mineral Springs, Seaside Resorts, and Health Spas, is about to be released. We'll talk with author Rick Kilby. They tried to get invalids to come down to Florida to enjoy the climate and take the waters. We'll discuss the Miami hurricane of 1926. The University of Miami's football team in 1926 adopted the name Hurricanes right after that storm, a name that they still use today. And we'll talk about the battle to integrate public schools in Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The new book, Florida's Healing Waters, Gilded Age Mineral Springs, Seaside Resorts, and Health Spas is being released this month by University Press of Florida. Author Rick Kilby is building on the success of his award-winning 2013 book, Finding the Fountain of Youth, Ponce de Leon, and Florida's Magical Waters. I went to the Fountain of Youth attraction in St. Augustine, and that's kind of where that all originated for me anyways. I grew up in Florida, and my father was a bit of a cheapskate, and he said, never go to places like that. They're tourist traps. And so when I went there, I found there was much more, and it kind of, that's where my obsession began. To try and follow the Fountain of Youth, the myth of the Fountain of Youth, and look for all things related to Ponce de Leon. And what I found was that Ponce de Leon was in some ways the original Florida man. He was like the pitch man for the state of Florida. And when I dug even deeper, you know, the, there's a lot of layers to the story. You know, he was the original governor of Puerto Rico. He never really was searching for the Fountain of Youth that was attached to him long after his death. But that's what kind of led me to my interest in Springs, because the myth was he was kind of bumbling around the state, going from spring to spring, looking for, you know, the legendary waters that would grant him eternal youth because he was in love with a younger woman, which is, you know, really not true. The mythology about Florida's magical waters persisted into subsequent centuries. People imagined Florida as a place they could come to regain health, and by the early 1800s, facilities were established to accommodate them. Early in Florida's history, St. Augustine always had kind of a reputation of being a place where healing waters were, and not just healing waters, the climate. I mean, the climate was the big sell. So one of the earliest people to come that we know about that was famous to come to Florida in order to get better from an illness was actually Ralph Waldo Emerson, who came in the 1820s and spent some time in St. Augustine. And he talks about, he talks about being bored, but he also talked about the culture of St. Augustine. And he talks about 
spending time on the beach because it was believed that not just the springs of Florida were powerful healing waters, but the, the beach was as well because of the salt air and the mineral and salt properties of the seawater. So he spent a lot of time on the beach and he talks about hitting an orange around on the sand, just kind of wasting time. But he also had a, you know, a very healthful experience because when he left, he was in a lot better shape than when he got here. He was dealing with consumption or we call it tuberculosis and he was in very, very poor shape. And he was one of the first people who came here as early as the 1820s. Most of the people who came here for healing came here after the Civil War when Florida got a reputation as its destination for invalids. So we're talking in the 1870s and steamboat travel kind of opened up the state. And so people started building health resorts along the St. John's River because it had, there was a steamboat travel up and down the river all the way from Enterprise to Jacksonville going back and forth and one of the major destinations for springs. So we have places like Magnolia Springs, and Green Cove Springs, Iowa Springs, the Springs of Enterprise, all up and down the river, they would establish these spas where people could come and take the waters. And there were many individuals who were involved with that. Jacob Brock, the steamboat captain, owned the Brock House at Enterprise. And there were another, other individuals who built big resorts in Greco Springs and Magnolia Springs. And that was mostly in the time in the 1870s through the turn of the century. Rick Kilby's new book, Florida's Healing Waters, focuses on places where people would come in the 1800s and early 1900s to benefit from the restorative properties of the state's natural environment. I covered 22 mineral springs that had resorts, and I I had to kind of make some decisions which of those I would cover. And so I really focused on the ones that had facilities that were built there, you know, Gilded Age resorts, mostly made out of wood, that were really beautiful structures none of them made it into you know the contemporary age unfortunately and so those were the the ones that i focused on in terms of the springs and i broke those down geographically so all the ones on the st john's which kind of developed first because that's where tourists were initially and then i covered kind of middle florida the springs of the swanee like white sulfur springs and swanee springs and then kind of the ones along the gulf like the the Spirit of Santo Springs we call Safety Harbor today, and Warm Mineral Springs that's in Northport. In addition to facilities built at Mineral Springs, Kilby explores seaside resorts of the Gilded Age, as the ocean waters along Florida's coast were also believed to have restorative powers. As Henry Flagler and Henry Plant created a railroad infrastructure in the state, facilities were constructed to accommodate travelers seeking better health. I covered many of the resorts of Flagler and Plant because in the promotional materials, they talked about how salubrious the waters of the Atlantic and the Gulf were, and they had all these promotions for sea bathing and surf bathing. In fact, some of the best material I found on Flagler's resorts were at the Florida Historical Society, and the other Ben helped me find some of those materials. So there's those two elements. And then the third aspect that I was really fascinated by was just common water that was used in hydrotherapy because there there was a whole sanatorium movement that developed at that time where it was believed hydrotherapy was good for you and any water, any cold water would work for you. So there were several pioneers in kind of alternative medicine who opened up sanitariums in Florida, including John Harvey Kellogg opened one in Miami Springs and a guy named Dr. Benedict Loost had one in Tangerine, Florida here in Orange County that was the same thing. They tried to get invalids to come down to Florida to enjoy the climate and take the waters for healing purposes. 
Visual source material, including historic photographs, postcards, and advertisements, are a significant part of the book Florida's Healing Waters. Rick Kilby. By far, some of the, my favorite images were White Sulphur Springs because it was, in terms of the structure, it was four stories high, and many of the postcards and serograph images had people on each of the floors, you know, surrounding. It was a very small spring. It's maybe a third magnitude spring, but the place was packed. And they're all in, you know, the people on the upper floors are in the Victorian garb, you know, very well dressed. And people on the bottom were in the water and their Victorian bathing suits. And I loved images like that. I found a lot of stereograph images because a lot of these places were very popular for tourists. So there's a lot of great stereograph images, for instance, of Green Cup Springs with the Clarendon Hotel in the background. And it's kind of, you could see that same spot again and again and again with different photographers with the spring in the foreground and then the big Clarendon Hotel, the big wooden hotel in the background. Those were some of my favorites. A lot of the images were postcards because, you know, many postcards were very popular at the time. And, you know, some of the best images, actually, the Library of Congress have William Henry Jackson images of Palm Springs at some of the Flagler resorts on the beach. And you can see the people in their Gilded Age, women with big hats and long dresses, men in their dapper suits strolling on the beach. And one of the things that I noticed in many of the pictures in both springs and sea bathing, they had safety lines going into the water for people to hold on to because a lot of people from the, the wealthier upper class people who were coming to Florida did not yet know how to swim. So they had signs that said, hold on to the safety lines. Because you can see in a lot of the photographs, people aren't swimming, they're waiting and they're holding onto those lines because they're afraid to, you know, to get swept away from the current or to fall into a spring. The multi-story architectural structures that were built beside Florida Springs now exist only in photographs, but Rick Kilby says there are still places where you can catch a glimpse of the Gilded Age fascination with Florida's healing waters. There's three places where you can still take the waters in a mineral spring in Florida. The first one is Green Cove Springs, and unfortunately none of the architecture remains because the Clarendon burned down, and it was replaced by the Casey Sauna, and Eventually that was torn down and City Hall is there now, but you can still take the waters and it still reeks heavily of sulfur. Uh, Warm Mineral Springs has a facility there, not from the Gilded Age, but from the mid-century. And it still attracts people, mostly for Eastern Europeans who want to go there and take the waters. And it's an extremely popular place for doing that. And the spot Safety Harbor, there, you know, there was five springs initially. And some of the same buildings that were there around the turn of the century still exists. They've just been added to and added to and added to, but it's, a, it's still a working spa. So they actually pipe the water up out of the spring and have it go into swimming pools. But they have one room that's decorated the way it would have been earlier in the 20th century. If you go to the annual Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, you can also see the first floor remains of what was once a grand four-story structure. The White Sulphur Spring is no longer active, but does fill with water from the Suwannee River. Just up the river are the ruins of the Rock Spring House Foundation at Suwannee Springs. Hampton Springs in Taylor County had an elaborate spring house with a series of pools that still exist. Today, Florida is still marketed as a place for revitalization and restoration. Yeah, if you look at the Visit Florida website and read some of the copy, it talks about the breezes on the beach, and, and it, it does talk about the springs being the fountain of youth. The same marketing copy hasn't changed all that much. 
and it's it's not as flowery as the writings of the 19th century, but they still kind of use the same hook. It's interesting. I was in traffic one day and I saw this billboard and it's for a place called Indigo Float here in Orlando and it's a float pod. And there's this young lady floating in the water. And if you go on the website, there's a list of ailments that, you know, floating in these kind of isolation pods will take care of. And it's eerily similar to the list of ailments they would have had in an ad for Swanee Springs or Green Cove Springs back in the 19th century because there's still a belief that water has healing qualities that can work for you today. You know, the minerals can be absorbed through the skin and there's the spiritual component too, that, you know, floating and being in the water is good. And a lot of the springs that are parks today that are recreational amenities, there are people who go there every morning before it opens and they clean it up, but they also do it because they have arthritis or some kind of thing that they believe will help heal them. So DeLeon Springs, has these ladies called mermaids who come in every morning and they kind of scrub with the algae a little bit and they float because they believe it helps with their whatever it is you know their chronic syndromes like arthritis and things that get relief from the spring water. As a child growing up in Gainesville Rick Kilby fondly remembers going to Silver Springs with out-of-town guests. Like many teenagers in Florida myself included Kilby had fun at private springs not marketed to tourists. I also remember going to springs along the Santa Fe River that were on private property, and you never even knew the name of the spring. We would camp, and we would throw watermelons in the spring because it would, they would get so cold sitting in the spring, you didn't need an icebox or anything, and then we were ready to eat them. You know, you practically needed an ice pick to break into them. They were so cold, and there was one time I camped, and I remember we were along a little spring with a spring run out in the Santa Fe, and we would just, it was like a flume ride. We would jump in the spring with a float, go down the spring run to the Santa Fe, get out, run around, and do it again and again and again all day long because the flow was so strong that it pushed you like a toboggan ride at a theme park or something. So I have great memories of going to the springs as kids. Rick Kilby's new book, Florida's Healing Waters, Gilded Age Mineral Springs, Seaside Resorts, and Health Spas, will be released this month by University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like our virtual Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium. The theme is 2020 Hindsight, How Florida's Past Informs Our Present and Future. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Hurricane coming, baby, across the sea to you and me. Hurricane coming, baby, across the sea to you and me. We ain't got no way of knowing where that battled stone she gonna be.
This is the time of year when most Floridians keep an eye on the wide open waters between Africa and Florida, watching for satellite images of those all too familiar swirling circular storms. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, hurricanes have had a huge impact on Florida history, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. We understand now that the Atlantic Ocean produces these powerful tropical cyclones known as hurricanes, and they bring powerful winds, sometimes in the triple digits, and create enormous and destructive storm surge. We know this. It it isn't really news that hurricane season is coming around every year, especially for Floridians. We understand the risk to our built environment that these storms pose. But looking back into Florida's history, there were really no reliable predictors. In fact, weather prediction and weather forecasting and monitoring was fairly rudimentary even into the 20th century. Recently, historians have been looking at the historic record to determine just how hurricanes have shaped the history of our region and really the history of our country. As early as 1559 in Florida, when the Spanish attempted to colonize the Gulf Coast at present-day Pensacola, before the colonists could even fully unload the ships, we believe it was actually a hurricane that struck the area and sank the ships right there in the harbor, still laden with all of their cargo. A few years later, on the East Coast, the French Fort Caroline was attacked by the Spanish, led by Pedro Menendez during a hurricane. And the French ships were actually destroyed further south near Cape Canaveral while trying to escape. And then another storm in 1715 destroyed a Spanish plate fleet wreck along Florida's East Coast. Now, in the 20th century, a Labor Day hurricane in 1935 killed hundreds, including World War I veterans working on the overseas railroad while trying to escape on a train. A few years earlier, a major storm struck the heart of Miami, known as the Great Miami Hurricane of 1926. This storm caused an estimated 14 to 15-foot storm surge around the Biscayne Bay region, and many of the wooden structures were completely destroyed, while even some of the concrete structures were severely damaged and, and a lot of them lost their roofs. Ben, I see you've pulled from the Florida Historical Society archives some original photographs showing the destruction caused by the 1926 hurricane. Yeah, so what we're looking at are photos from two separate collections. Both are scrapbooks from people who were in Miami in the mid-1920s. The first collection includes several photos of people on Miami Beach enjoying the surf, visiting the famous hotels. Here's a set of people swimming at one of Miami Beach's several casinos. This one was known as the Roman Pools. And the Roman Pools facility was built by some of Miami Beach's early developers, and it featured this giant multi-story windmill right there by the ocean. And these casinos weren't really casinos in today's sense. They were public pools and recreation centers primarily. And the Roman Pools was very well-known, very popular with holding these high-diving events and swimsuit competitions and you name it. Very popular place in Miami Beach in the 1920s. Now, in these photos, everyone is looking blissfully happy and enjoying themselves. But if we move over to the second collection, these were taken in late September of 1926. And you can almost recognize the shell of a building, and that was the Roman Pools Casino. And really, you can only recognize it because of the windmill that's still in the background. And here are some photos of downtown Miami along Flagler Street and Biscayne Boulevard. The first thing that jumps out at you are the ships lying on their sides in the middle of the street. I mean, the storm surge was that powerful that it pushed these huge commercial vessels right up onto the boulevard. It was an incredible storm that caused a lot of damage, not only in Miami, but across southern Florida, including lots of flooding around Lake Okeechobee as well. In addition to the obvious storm damage we can see in these photos, this particular storm combined with other factors to have a lasting impact on Miami, right? 
1926, Miami's feverish construction and expansion represented a much larger problem in Florida, and that was building housing and land speculation bubble that was really on the verge of bursting already by the late 1926. For years, people had been flocking to Florida, and the prices for land, they were skyrocketing. Banks were loaning out money like crazy. The whole system was doomed to collapse. Well, it took a series of events culminating with the hurricane that hit in mid-September of 1926 that really put a stop to the whole thing. In January of that year, there was a large four-masted schooner named the Prince Valdemar that actually capsized right inside Miami Harbor, essentially blocking all maritime traffic from coming into the harbor for nearly a month. And a lot of that traffic included tons of building supplies needed to continue the commercial construction within the city. But it was a destruction caused by the hurricane that really forced a lot of these investors out and, and left a lot of people with nothing but mountains of debt. Some historians have argued that Miami's experience in 1926 really represents the beginning of the Great Depression, at least for Florida. Miami Beach, as the heady party town of the early 1920s, was really gone by the end of the decade. And Miami really kind of slipped into this period of quiet reconstruction for the next decade or so before being rediscovered again in the 1940s. And well, today it's really the center of South Florida in terms of culture and, and the largest population epicenter. And actually, another interesting fact, the University of Miami's football team in 1926 adopted the name Hurricanes right after that storm, a name that they still use today. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. To see the photographs we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. The struggle to integrate public schools in Jacksonville continued long after the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision. Justin Lawson is a graduate student in the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History at Pace University. Jacksonville, Florida has been at the center of several tenuous racial disputes throughout the years, but has also thrived as a place in the South where black citizens are empowered to establish communities that demand education and challenge the status quo. Dr. Abel Bartley is the founding director of African American Studies at Clemson University and a Jacksonville native. It had a large African American community that invested in itself and uh, it produced a lot of people who, you know, challenged the system and moved them. When you think of people like A. Philip Randolph, who, you know, spent a lot of time in Jacksonville, James Wilson Johnson, who, you know, everybody talks about James Wilson Johnson, and I was just reading the other day, that they're thinking about changing Hemming Park and name, renaming it James Elton Johnson Park. So it had a progressive streak, and they had, had you know, the African-American schools, even though they were not equal, they had teachers who were very much so investing in those students who did a good job of training kids to be leaders. Then you had a college there, uh, Edward Waters College, and it, it was just a place that sort of emanated a lot of progressive ideas and progressive thought, and it incubated a lot of people who, who went on to change the world. Even if you, you know, if you look at Zora Neale Hurston, much of her developmental years was spent in Jacksonville. And so I think what it is, you had a city that, was, that had a progressive African-American community and a very conservative white community. 
And in order to make the, the system work, they sort of cooperated and, and, and created a city that was ahead of its time in a lot of ways, but behind times in other ways. The history of school segregation is deeply ingrained throughout the South, and Jacksonville became a major site for the battle to integrate public schools following the Supreme Court's landmark Brown v. Board decisions in the 1950s. Earl Johnson filed most of the suits demanding integration of the school system, and he did it while sacrificing his wife. His wife was, was an employee of the school district, and she was terrified that she was going to lose her job, but it was more important for her and more important for the family to make sure that their children got the chance to get an integrated education. And so he filed these suits all over the state of Florida. He worked with people like Thurgood Marshall, he worked with other lawyers, and he's, he, he is one of the most significant African-American lawyers in Florida who doesn't get the credit that he deserves. NAACP lawyer Earl Johnson Sr. would go on to represent Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Ambassador Andrew Young in suits against St. Augustine. However, in 1960, he filed suit against the school district, alleging that schools were systemically separated through the implementation of segregated attendance boundaries, teacher assignments, and a school numbering system with double-digit numbers assigned to white schools and numbers in the 100s assigned to black schools. Despite the judge's ruling that the school district was operating an illegal dual school system, Duval County School Board took little action. There was a playbook written in South Carolina for how they were going to hold off school integration. Uh, Jimmy Burns, the governor here in South Carolina, put together a playbook and he sent it around the South. What we're going to do is delay it, delay it, delay it, and hopefully get a court that will reverse it and, and we won't have to integrate schools. That's sort of what Jackson was, was hoping for. And so you get Brown 1 and 54, you get Brown 2 and 55, maybe they got to start, but they don't start. They don't do anything. Then in 1960, you get the sham integration thing when, when Earl Johnson filed suit. And for two years, they, they piddled around, you know, integrating one or two people and saying, you know, well, we're going to start with grade, you know, go one grade at a time. Due to zoning practices that placed many all-black schools in industrial areas and in schools that were considered too dangerous for white students to attend, Almost all of the black neighborhood schools were shuttered, and black students faced long bus rides into white suburban schools. African Americans made a mistake by accepting the burden of integration. I think that was a mistake on their part. They closed down the African American schools and sent black kids to white schools, but then the white kids generally left, and, I, and, and so there wasn't the investment in education. The NAACP supported many of the suits filed against the Duval County School Board, and in the 1960 suit, Future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall was sent to Florida from Washington by the NAACP to help argue the case. While results from that case were not exactly system changing, it was an important step in wielding the 14th Amendment as a tool in court. It did bring improvements to African-American teachers, and it did show them that they could use the courts to fight battles. And I think that was his significance, that he convinced African-Americans after all the singing and swaying and, and you know crying and praying and all that, what really won the battles was going to court and getting the courts on the African-American side and changing the law. And that's what he always said. I did, you know, Martin Luther King did all the marching. I did all of the, of the brief writing. Progress towards integrating schools made headway into the 1970s, but began to slow nearing the turn of the century. In 2017, the Leroy Collins Institute released a report highlighting a trend of increasing segregation in Florida's public schools. Americans have been retreating to their corners. 
And, you know, neighborhoods, you know, have not been integrated very well. And so the schools have not been integrated very well. And that's what you're seeing. And so when you begin to move away from this notion of busing and, and putting kids together to a force plan, what's, what's left is these voluntary plans, and they have not produced the results that we want. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Justin Lawson, graduate student in American history with the Gilder Lehrman Institute at Pace University. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us on Facebook and visit us anytime at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and this week, Justin Lawson. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.